0: To take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right into the danger zone. In this Danger Zone program, I'm going to be talking about a cavalryman who was shot down. What was he doing? Riding a flying horse? Two planes that shot each other down? About What happened when those crews who shot each other down met on the ground after they had each crash-landed their planes? Did they become good friends and laugh about it? Or did the ones that had the guns kill the ones that didn't have any? Why did they steal a car? It's a pretty interesting program, so don't flip channels on me. I'm Paul, and this is The Danger Zone, It sounds like a joke. You join the cavalry and the next thing you find, yourself trained as a pilot to fly a German Heinkel 111 bomber. But that was what happened to Leutnant Horst Scholpis. Germany, Hitler, was wanting to build up a large air force and it was looking for suitable people that could fill out its numbers. By April 1940, Hitler had become worried that England and France would invade Norway. He wanted to get in first. Germany got a lot of important minerals and metals from Sweden. A lot went through the port of Narvik, up in northern Norway. The loss of Norway would have serious, maybe fatal, consequences for Germany. The English were already laying mines in Norwegian territorial waters, to stop German coastal traffic. The Germans in World War II have an awesome reputation for their military skills. Hitler appointed General von Falkenhorst to rapidly draw up plans for the invasion of Norway. Denmark was included as a key nation that controlled access to the Baltic Sea. And Germany couldn't get to Norway anyway without going through little Denmark Falkenhorst called for detailed military maps to get the planning underway. Germany didn't have any. Falkenhorst had to go to a nearby bookshop and buy a copy of the Beidecker's tourist guidebook to Norway. And that's what he used to plan the invasion. Then the Germans simultaneously attacked Denmark and Norway beginning on 9 April 1940. A lot of military forces from Germany, England, France and Norway were drawn into this fight. On Saturday, 27 April, a German aircraft, a Heinkel 111 bomber, was flying a mission. It had a crew of four. The pilot was our horse-riding friend, formerly Leutnant, but now Kapitän Horst Schopis. The other crew members were Feldwebel Karl-Heinz Strunk, the co-pilot, Unterofficier, Josef Alktor, the mechanic, and Hans Hulk, who was the tail gunner. The Heinkel was operating out of an airbase that had been captured in Denmark, near the town of Aalborg. Their mission that day was to scour the Norwegian coast, looking for enemy shipping to attack. Three British carrier-borne fighters, Blackburn Skewers, launched off the British aircraft carrier Ark Royal, were operating in the same area that Chopin's Heinkel unit was flying in. The Skewers belonged to 800 Squadron. 800 Squadron was commanded by Captain Richard Thomas Partridge of the Royal Marines. The Skewer aircraft needed a crew of two. The second man sat behind the pilot, facing rearwards. He operated the telegraph on the plane and the rear-pointing gun. On this mission, that crew member was Lieutenant Robert Bostock of the Royal Navy. Richard, the pilot, had joined the Royal Marines in 1929. He served on a number of Royal Navy ships before he was posted to the aircraft carrier HMS Hermes in the Southeast Asia China Station. Flying wasn't something that he'd thought about, I guess pretty much like Chopus. But serving on the aircraft carrier HMS Hermes piqued his interest, and he applied for flying training. He was accepted in September 1933, and he got his wings in 1934. By the time the war came, Richard was quite the experienced pilot, flying with the fleet air arm. On 24th April, Richard was given command of 800 Squadron. The skewers under Richard's command saw the Heinkel formation and Richard gave the tally-ho signal, sending the squadron on in to attack. The Heinkels scattered. The weather was bad and Capitan Schopis lost contact with the rest of his unit. He was in fact totally lost, flying over some rugged Norwegian mountains although he didn't know where he was. He was in fact close to the town of Gottlie, inland among some rugged mountains. Godley is roughly midway between Bergen and Trondheim. Look them up on a map. The skewers all made Schopus's Heinkel the target of their attack. They focused their fire on his port, the left engine. In the exchanges of fire, the Heinkel was mortally wounded. The port engine stopped... The Heichel had two engines, and now with only one engine and other damage, Shopus had to get his plane down as quickly as he could. The Skewers broke off their attack as the Heichel 111 plunged downward. Fighters don't carry a lot of ammunition, and there was no point wasting it on a doomed aircraft. There were other targets to find and engage. Soon after they broke off the attack, Richard's engine started to malfunction. His plane was now nothing more than a very heavy, clumsy glider. He had to land somewhere immediately. Schopus managed to safely bring his plane down in a crash landing, wheels up on Lake Hailstugu. The speed of the plane, its weight and moving across ice, meant that the plane skated across the surface and was up the slope on the other side where it came to rest. Shopus had done a brilliant landing, though his tail gunner, Hans Halk, was killed in the landing. So Shopus's first job was to decently dispose of his fallen comrade's body. The ground was rocky and frozen solid. They just couldn't put the body under the snow. Animals on the mountains would devour them. They couldn't take the body with them either. The snow was about two meters deep. The only thing they could do was to wrap up his body and put it in the wreckage in a way that would hopefully stop animals getting to it. Chopas and his comrades were distressed about this, but it was all they could do. Chopas later was relieved to learn that the Norwegians had found the plane and arranged for a proper burial for poor Hans. With that problem dealt with as well as they could, they began their struggle to find some shelter. They would freeze to death unless they could find shelter. Their mood was grim. They were angry and distressed about losing one of their comrades. Meanwhile, Richard, with his disabled plane was lucky too. He had spotted another frozen lake. It was Lake Bradle. On the way down he also spotted an old reindeer hunter's cabin not far from where he was going to try to bring his plane down, hopefully successfully. If they survived the landing they would head for that cabin. The good news was that the landing was successful and no one was injured. It was lucky that Richard was such an experienced pilot. The bad news was that they didn't know whether the area they'd landed in was now controlled by their side or the Germans. Things were developing fast in that regard and not in a good way for the English. Richard got the very pistol from the plane and from a safe distance he fired the flare at the plane's petrol tank, setting it on fire. Now, he and Robert began to trudge through the deep snowdrifts to the cabin that Richard had seen before they crashed. They got to the cabin, shook off the snow and started to relax when they heard a shrill whistle. It was the three Germans. Through the window, Richard saw that the Germans didn't seem too happy. There was a lot of scowling, shouting and cussing as they made their way to the same cabin wasn't being unhappy and grumpy that worried Richard and his offsider Robert. It was the fact that the Germans were unhappy and grumpy and carrying pistols and knives. At that time of the war, I guess the British didn't supply their air crews with any weapons, just in case of this sort of eventuality. Richard and Robert went out of the cabin to greet the Germans. Richard instinctively thrust his hand out to shake hands with the German commanding officer. At an August 2004 reunion at the site of these wartime adventures, Chopas said that as soon as Richard offered his hand in greeting, any thought of reaching for his sidearm and killing the English evaporated. Richard thought that the absolute worst thing he could say to these Germans would be that He was one of the pilots who shot their plane down and ultimately caused the death of one of their crew. Richard may have worked out for himself that something bad had happened to the other crew member since there were only three Germans and not the four that there should have been. That would mean increased tension between them and he had to be on guard against the armed Germans becoming aggressive. I've been brought up to believe that honesty is always the best policy. But not on this day. When the Germans got close enough, Richard and Robert came out of the cabin and greeted them. The handshake I talked about. Richard acted surprised to see them. The men shared no common language. Richard and Robert didn't speak German and Chopas and his crew members didn't speak any English. They had no other language in common. So talking to each other depended on single words that might be understood by the other and hand signs. The Germans got across to the English about how fighters, they thought Spitfires, which would have meant just one pilot, had shot them down. Again, Richard and Robert acted surprised at this news. Chopus had no idea that one of the English planes that had attacked them had crashed. Richard played his best card in these difficult circumstances. He gestured that he and Robert were the survivors of a British Wellington bomber that had been shot down by German fighters. That was a great bonding tactic. Everyone now hated fighter pilots more than each other. So what were they going to do now? Say goodbye or do what? Or would the Germans just finish off these Englanders anyway? A small hotel, that's a hint, because that's where we are. Well, we're coming to that. Richard and Robert invited the Germans into the cabin. Not much choice, really. The men shared the cabin overnight. There was some coffee and muesli, and they shared it around. Karl Heinz Strunk, the co-pilot, had been injured in his arm by some shrapnel from the plane during the fight with the skewers. Chopas had had the sense to bring the first aid kit from the plane with him. That let him dress the wounds as best he could. They weren't too severe, luckily. The next morning, Richard convinced the Germans that he and Robert should scout around and see what was nearby. Hopefully some food. Chopas agreed. Richard and Robert were soon in luck. They found the Grottly hotel. It was closed up for the winter, but they broke in. They found some biscuits and coffee, which they brought back to the cabin, and now they knew where they were from information they found in the hotel. Richard convinced the Germans to let he and Robert go back to see what more there was at the hotel. When they got there, they had a chance to rest and think about how they could get away and to look at some maps. They found two pairs of old skis. Richard and Robert were about to head off to try to find a nearby village when the Germans arrived at the hotel too. The skis made the Germans suspicious about what they were up to, rightly so. Chopus indicated that the Germans would go with them. His men found some wooden boxes in the hotel, and Chopus was able to get his men to fashion some makeshift snowshoes to help them on the snow. They found some telephone wires to keep their snow boots attached to their feet they now agreed that they'd all leave together to try to find the village shown on the map just as they left the hotel they came across a norwegian ski patrol the ski patrol was armed with rifles seeing men dressed in military clothing not norwegians they raised their rifles and aimed them at them what happened next is unclear Carl Hines, the co-pilot, shouted out to the ski patrol, English! The Norwegians fired a warning shot. Richard instinctively dove to the ground for cover. The most usual account of what happened next on the internet is that co-pilot Carl Hines reached for his sidearm so that he could shoot at the patrol. It sounds a little unlikely to me, Had Carl Hines seen too many Westerns? Did he think that he was some sort of fast gunslinger? It makes for a dramatic story, but I think it's unlikely. The sidearm carried by military personnel is always secured in place. Often there's a flap over it to really secure it into place. If you have to bail out of a crashing plane and the sidearm is sitting in an open holster, you'd most likely have lost it by the time you hit the ground. The Norwegians had their rifles trained on these men, so it was unlikely that Karl Hines could have imagined in his wildest dreams that, that he could get his pistol out of its holster and get off a shot before the Norwegians killed him and perhaps some or all of the other men. At the reunion in 2004, Chopis said that when they met the patrol, one of the Norwegian men on skis slipped and fell. His rifle discharged on hitting the ground, and that was how Karl Heinz came to be killed. Very unlucky, but that seems more likely to me. Just as Karl Heinz came to be killed, a single German Heinkel 111 spotted all of these men gathered on the ground and swooped in, strafing them. Luckily, no one was injured, but it seemed likely that the Germans were near. The surviving Germans, Schopus and Unterofficier Josef Alktor, the mechanic, were taken into custody by the Norwegians and disarmed. Robert and Richard, the patrol were convinced, were Germans too, and they should all be arrested. I mean, what would the chances be in any war of seeing the enemy mingled and obviously travelling together? Again, there was no common language. The Norwegians only spoke Norwegian. Robert and Richard had to scratch around for some way to prove to the Norwegians that they were English. They showed them the labels on their uniforms. Richard pulled out an English coin with the head of King George VI on it. Even more remarkably, it turned out, that one of Richard's relatives was a mutual relative of one of the men on the ski patrol. Finally, the Norwegians accepted that they were English. The Germans were taken off to the nearby town of Stryn. A barn was made into a temporary prison. The British authorities soon after arranged for them to be sent back to Scotland and from there they were sent to Cockfosters in London for interrogation. After that, they were sent to Canada, where they remained for the rest of the war until their release and return to Germany in 1946. At the reunion in 2004, Shopus reflected that being shot down on this day was probably a lucky break for him. His unit was later engaged in the Battle of Britain, and then the Blitz, Later still, it was sent to the Eastern Front. Many of Chopus's comrades died in these various engagements. Schopus lived to the ripe old age of 99, dying in 2011. Nothing is known about what happened to his mechanic after the war. The Norwegians, after accepting that Richard and Robert were English, set them free. A local man named Sevald Grotli took the two British airmen under his wing and helped them get to Allesund, a nearby coastal town. From there, it looked likely that they could be evacuated. The Germans were advancing on the town, so it was going to be a close-run thing. Would they escape back to Old Blighty first? Several Grotli, with Richard and Robert in tow, reached Allesund. It was under heavy German attack, the ship that was supposed to come and rescue all of the British personnel was a no-show. Richard and Robert were not going to give up that easily. With Sevold's help, they stole a car and drove across town where they found another British ship. They were evacuated to safety. Sevald then made his way back to Grotley. Richard and Robert rejoined their units. Both men later participated in another attack in this Norwegian campaign, that was intended to inflict a major loss on the German Navy. The battlecruiser Scharnhorst had suffered torpedo damage during an attack on the British aircraft carrier Glorious, which led to the sinking of the Glorious. The Scharnhorst put into the harbour at Trondheim for repairs. The British had already successfully attacked and sunk the light cruiser Konigsberg with skewers. There were hopes of repeating that success. The Skewer's 500-pound bombs had penetrated the deck of the Königsberg. If the same outcome could be achieved against the Scharnhorst, it would be a serious blow to the Germans. But there was a big difference. The Scharnhorst was a battlecruiser with much stronger armour on the deck. The 500-pound bombs probably wouldn't be able to penetrate it. The attack on the Königsberg had taken place on the first few days of the invasion of Norway. Everyone was still learning how to fight in this war. The attack on the Konigsberg caught the German crew unprepared. The anti-aircraft crews on the ships weren't ready. The fighter defences for the ships didn't coordinate properly. And finally, the Konigsberg was in the harbour at Bergen, which is right on the coast. Trondheim, where the damaged Scharnhorst was, is a distance from the sea, 20 minutes flying time flak and fighter defences were ready. A combined attack by 15 skewers was launched from the Ark Royal, acting as bombers, with fighter cover to be provided by a squadron of Blenheim fighters that had to fly from the UK. That was just way too ambitious, thinking that these two could coordinate their attack. The Skewers' flight to Trondheim was intercepted by German ME-109s and ME-110s. The Skewers were unprotected. Their escorts ended up turning up after the attack was over. So both on the way to the Scharnhorst and their return, they were subject to fighter interceptors. The AA defences on the ship and in the harbour were also ready and waiting for the British, having been tipped off as they crossed the coast. Of the 15 skewers that took part in the attack, eight were shot down. The planes brought down included Captain Richard Partridge's plane. He survived. He was captured and spent the rest of the war in a German Air Force prisoner of war camp. In 1977, Schopus was telephoned by Richard. They met up as friends from time to time in Munich and London, their respective hometowns. Richard passed away in 1990. Robert Bostock flew in the same attack on the Scharnhorst that Richard did, and he was killed in action. In 1974, the British mounted a bid to rescue Richard's skewer from the bottom of the Norwegian lake. It was successful, and the aircraft was taken to the Fleet Air Museum at Yeovilton, Somerset in England. The plane was then cleaned up somewhat and put on display. The 2004 reunion that I spoke of earlier in the program was at the site of where the skewer had come down, and then the people at the reunion retraced Richard's step to the reindeer hunter's cabin and the hotel. But there's one further bit to this story that needs to be told to complete it. All of the accounts you read on the internet speak about the skewer suffering engine problems after the attack on the Heichel 111, these things happen in war, and maybe it had something to do with the fire that the Heinkel 111 had poured into the attacking skewer fighters. Maybe not. Klas Jomelsli, from the Norwegian Aviation Museum in Bodo specialised in skewer aircraft. He visited Richard's recovered plane at the yeovilton Museum frequently. Klas noticed that there was an imperfection in the main oil feed pipe. The pipe was still packed around with congealed oil and mud from the lake bed, which hadn't been cleaned away. With the help of the expert staff at the museum, Cluss removed these obstructions. There was a bullet hole that had gone clean through this pipe. It was undoubtedly this that had brought the plane down. This was discovered just before the reunion at the Skua crash site. The reunion took place on the occasion of Chopas' 92nd birthday. The most unusual birthday present Shopus ever received were photographs of the bullet holes in the oil pipeline of the skewer. It turned out that both planes had shot each other down. Perhaps the ultimate irony was that when they were gathered at the lake, Klus spotted a spent brass cartridge case, obviously fired from Schopus’s Heinkel 111. Was this the cartridge case from the actual bullet that brought the skewer down? The story was made into a movie called Into the White. The story was made more interesting than real life. Rupert Grint, Ron Weasley from the Harry Potter series, played the role of Robert Bostock. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in this Danger Zone program. I hope you can join me next week.